Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 67, Breaking Cannon, recorded Monday, August 10th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Chris, and Katrina. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Chris. And I'm Katrina. And we've got Chris and Katrina from the Gameable Pixar podcast on with us now. Chris, Katrina, we've talked about the Gameable Disney podcast before. Tell us why you guys are famous on the internet with your Gameable Pixar slash Disney slash everything else podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The Gameable Podcast Empire. Yeah. That's the idea. We've got sort of an umbrella brand that we're going to build with the Gameable podcast because, you know, we did the Gameable Disney podcast. And then we ran out of Disney movies. Right. So we did a complete podcast series where we analyzed the Disney movies and talked about their characters and settings and all that stuff for role playing purposes. After finishing with Disney, we moved on to Pixar. And uh, I think the next thing up after we're done with this is probably going to be the Gameable Saturday morning podcast, which I've mentioned three times on Twitter, which makes it real. It's like Beetlejuice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Or Hastier. (laughs) <laughs> oh no 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 yes don't actually say that. very similar <laughs> awesome uh so obviously we are huge fans of the gameable disney and pixar podcast thank you great show i've learned a lot about disney films and a lot about storytelling from it i'm curious yeah, how you guys here. got your start with it like what was the hey let's start this podcast moment you know i remember having this discussion basically because i really wanted to watch snow white again and you hadn't seen it, and then after watching it, it was sort of a germ in your idea, and it kind of grew out of some conversations that we were having about whether or not you could tell this story in a role-playing game. Yeah, I think it was a combination of Snow White and also um, Enchanted. Uh, those of yes. you who've listened to the Gamble Disney podcast will remember the Enchanted episode, and uh, that was part of the inspiration, because we watched that, I believe, for other purposes, for other reasons. And because you hadn't seen it. And it was just one of those things where we watched that. You know how it is as a gamer, sometimes you see something, a piece of media, and you're like, oh, I just, that's clicking in my brain. I can see how to do that at the table. Yeah. So, yeah. I went through that recently with the newest Terminator movie, hmm. which kind of got panned by critics, but I went in cold, and the whole time I'm sitting here watching this, it's like, I could pull that for a game. I could pull that for a game. I could nice. pull that for a game. I came out of the theater really happy and then came home and read some reviews, and I was like, huh. Well, I still got a whole bunch of cool gaming ideas. I'm happy with my purchase. You know, the gamer goggles can sometimes really add extra value to media. And now yeah. we can't stop. You know, whenever <laughs> we watch a movie now, it's like, oh, can I get that for gaming? Or can we talk about that on the podcast? And it just, I mean, that's why it's growing. It's like, well, now that we've run out of Disney movies, let's talk about Pixar. And maybe maybe DreamWorks, maybe not. And then the gameable Saturday morning. I don't remember how that one worked its way in, but now it's now it's in the queue. And yeah, Pirates of Dark Water, man. What? Pirates of Dark Water. That's a cartoon. Yeah, of course it is. Okay. Let's not take over the podcast with cartoon talk. All right. <laughs> what? No, that's why <laughs> well, you're I here. Just, I just listened to the Shrek episode today, so you guys have done at least one DreamWorks movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Of and course... they've done a second, but hasn't dropped yet. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> But of course, we are talking about DreamWorks in this episode because you came onto our show to talk about Prince of Egypt, a very, very different DreamWorks picture than <laughs> very different yeah. as it happens. Yes, and Shrek, or a Shark Tale, or How to Train Your Dragon, or any of the other DreamWorks stuff. 
yeah, yeah. definitely a weird, a weird one for DreamWorks. Yep. So let me ask you, if people want to find Gameable Pixar Podcast, where do they go on the internet? Well, there are a few places to go. Uh, probably the best one is Twitter. At Gameable Podcast is where you can find all of our... We, whenever we do a new episode, that goes up on Twitter. Occasionally, we'll tweet about other things as well. Um, that's a little more active. We also have uh, GameableDisneyPodcast.tumblr.com. That's the sort of Tumblr blog that hosts all of the new episodes. So that's where you can find all the links to the old episodes if you want to go back and look at all that stuff. And if you want to email us, we always give out the email because we're trying to have more and more kind of communication with listeners on the show. Um, GameablePixarPodcast at gmail.com is where you can get in touch with us. Uh, if you have like suggestions for bonus episodes or anything like that, or you know questions about the show, and listeners have sent us some great like bonus material. We've had people sending character sheets or ideas for systems, and all of that stuff is great because you know no one gamer can know all the systems out there, and so it's wonderful to get input on. Ah, uh, Kingdom is this thing that you totally should have been talking about, but you didn't. Why mm-hmm. didn't you? Mm-hmm. But we didn't know. So, thank you, listeners. Yeah, but good listeners are fantastic mm-hmm. best part of any podcast yeah, yeah the the best thing about doing an rpg podcast the listener community the second best thing about doing an rpg podcast other rpg podcasters strangely <laughs> enough so yeah, yeah. <laughs> third best thing sweet sweet podcaster money and i just made that up uh, <laughs> which is totally fictional wait does yeah. that mean that you're not going to okay, be sending the check yeah <laughs> i'll not? send you a check uh it'll it'll be made out to void <laughs> there, there, there will be a, a piece of paper with a large check mark on it that will arrive yes. in your mail. By check, I meant thank you note, and it's just going to be like a big smiley face, like thank yeah. you, you're great. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get one of those like Disney thank you cards, like you get for children's birthdays. It'll be great. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> we can put it in the podcast scrapbook. Not, we should start a podcast scrapbook. All right. right. So before we get started on our scripture, I have one quick note slash plug slash congratulation don't want to spend too much time on it because we've got awesome guests on but real quick i went to electric city comic-con down in anderson south carolina this past weekend which was uh the 8th of august 2015 one of the show organizers is a friend of mine a librarian in the anderson county library system the con was at the main anderson library they expected 400 people They'd really hoped for 600, and the low estimate of unique people walking through the doors was 1,200. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. They had a huge turnout. It was really, really good. Incredibly high-quality cosplay, great stuff for kids, really good panels. David Weber, Delilah S. Dawson, one other author whose name escapes me at the moment, did a really good writing panel. Good intro to cosplay panel. Really surprisingly solid vendor hall. Just everything went really, really well. So if you are in kind of the the South Carolina, Georgia, maybe even Tennessee area, next year about this time, keep an eye out for Electric City Comic Con. I will be there next year. I have to assume that with double or triple the expected turnout, they're going to do it again. And I have already been asked to have a larger role in the show, like, you know, either a booth or maybe even more than that. So hopefully Saving the Game will have some presence there officially instead of me and my kid and, you know, my wife all going, ooh, I want to buy that. So, you know. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm it was so, really cool. So happy to hear that. Local cons are awesome. 
when they really pull it off, it's great. So, anyway, enough of that. Scripture. We've got a fair bit of scripture reading, then we've got a really interesting topic to get into. Who wants to start with Isaiah, this big chunk from Isaiah 55? Why don't you take that one, Grant? You generally do the best with the long stuff. Okay, fair enough. This is Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Okay, who wants the next one? Um, I can take Jeremiah. Okay. So that's uh, Jeremiah twenty-three, twenty-eight through 30. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. And Katrina, I'll give you a pick of the last two. I'll call Romans because I'm not wearing my glasses and it is the shortest. Okay, I'll take Matthew then. This is Matthew twenty-three, thirteen to 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And finally, Romans fifteen four, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. All right, thank you. So, we're talking tonight about canon, and specifically about breaking canon. We're talking about this in large part because of some conversations we had relating to the Prince of Egypt movie we watched. I think we first need to define very briefly what canon means. I suspect everybody knows, but it'll give us kind of a starting point. What is canon in a nutshell? Do you want to take a stab at this or shall I? You do it, English major. (laughs) Um, well, I mean, to me, when I think of canon, especially in relation to uh, to role-playing games or to Prince of Egypt, I'm thinking of an original text that is kind of sacrosanct in the sense that we can do other creative things around it, we can interpret it, but whatever is laid down there and is canon is meant to be inviolable. That is what it is. Now, we're going to be talking about breaking canon, obviously, but from that starting point, it is this is what definitely happened, uh, as opposed to the stuff that is sort of, you know, maybe this or maybe that, or, you know, it's open to interpretation. Okay. Now, I know uh, I am not necessarily big on a lot of canonical universes. And generally speaking, when we're talking about canon, we're talking about a universe or world that somebody has created in fiction. Mm-hmm. It's not generally just one work, although certainly it can be. Yeah, and- yeah you'll, you'll, you'll see this also referred to with works of great literature like Shakespeare and stuff. That That's probably what a non-geek would be more familiar with, is like right. Shakespeare or the Bible, or other of these kind of older works of literature that people are kind of discouraged from messing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the gaming context, as you kind of hinted at, this is generally a term for established settings. So for Star Wars, the original trilogy is generally considered canon by everybody. And then there's the prequel trilogy, which a lot of people ignore, or the books, or the comic books, and 
this is kind of relevant because when Disney acquired Star Wars, I think they said they were throwing out everything as canon except for the original trilogy and maybe the I prequels. I think that's right. There was a big hullabaloo about it because there were these like different levels of canon and ones kind of lower down the totem pole had to respect everything above it, but not necessarily below mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. It was, it was very complicated. And most franchise universes, I think, have that same problem. Like, you know, there are Star Trek TV episodes and Star Trek movies and Star Trek cartoons and Star Trek role-playing games and Star Trek novels and deciding which of those you take as canon and which you don't can be become kind of a chore. And also, who gets to decide what's canon gets to be important a lot of the time. Oh, yes. I mean, because another, again, sort of in the idea of great works of literature, there's this idea of the Western canon, which is like the body of works that have formed the general academic or literary discourse for a long, long, long time. And how things get in or get out of the canon has been the subject of angry, angry discussions between university professors for for generations and will continue to be, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And it's absolutely it's the same with a fictional canon as it is with, you know, a literary canon that on the one hand, there's always going to be a certain kind of elitism and yes, gatekeeping involved with like what goes in and what doesn't and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's also information people need to know because part of it is what happened in relation to other things. Or in the case of a literary canon, what are we expected to have read? Like what's on the reading list? You know, nobody's going to come down on you for not having read Twilight, despite its great commercial success. Like nobody's going to act like you aren't qualified to write or to read because you don't know about that. Whereas but you then, might get some shade if you've never heard of Shakespeare or yes. read at least one of his plays. Because so many people have referenced it that it's it's essential. And the Bible is the same way, you know, in addition to whatever else it is, the Bible is a literary classic. And if you don't know it, then you need to handle that before you try to engage literature fully because it's so important. So Yeah, and certainly scripture has a canonical history of Israel mm -hmm. that comes up a lot. And that's reflected in media. It's really been reflected in media of different types for the past, what, 2,000 years. Letters and, you know, eventually works of fiction and hymns and all of these other ways that people have taken elements of that story and turned it into things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to the point where people think that there's stuff in scripture that there isn't anymore because of stuff that's been based on it. People mm -hmm. will pull from uh, Dante and Milton and yeah. think that that stuff is in the Bible when it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, Dante is one of the best excuses for fan fiction that exists. <laughs> if you ever need to justify fan fiction, invoke Dante's trilogy, the you know, the Inferno, Paradiso, and Purgatario. You'll win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the other weird things about canon is that very often it can change. Even what is supposedly canonical can change. We see this most of the time in comics, right? The the comic book retcon is a famous problem that, that people deal with. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly, most of the major published comic book universes have had repeated retcons where writers say, you know, we just don't have room to create in this story anymore. Let's start over. Well, and I mean, sometimes you'll get some of that when... Something is adapted from one format to another. Let's say yeah. you're running a canonical Lord of the Rings game these days. Well, are the movies canon or are the books? Because in one of those, the elves show up at the Battle of Helm's Deep and the other they don't. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, the idea of the retcon, too, is something that's transformed over time. And that's something that'll bear talking about for gaming purposes, because in the original sense of the retcon, it is just that it is retroactive continuity. It's an attempt to go back and take two things that originally didn't fit together and like write a new story or find a new way so they can fit together. And then later, we kind of got the sense of the retcon as going back and sort of more or less covertly changing the past. To or overtly changing it, depending yeah. on the storyline. <laughs> yeah, and so that's you know that's two different ways to approach it in gaming. And and like we're we're uh, Doctor Who fans, and one of the things about Doctor Who is they have basically a continuous rolling retcon. Yep. Because the main character is a time traveler. So what they've said from uh, at least uh, Stephen Moffat, who's the current showrunner, is that um, basically if you notice a contradiction in Doctor Who, you must have missed the episode where the Doctor went back in time and changed things. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of a cop out, but I mean, what well, are you going to sure. do with like 50 plus years of television? You're bound to miss something as a writer or have something that you didn't know about. That's fine. Well, especially when it all deals with time travel. It's all mm-hmm. wonky. I mean, I, I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but if your whole premise is time travel, <laughs> you got to cut the writers some slack. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the cases where I think canon can show some of its limitations because often when we look at something canonical it traps kind of freezes in amber not just a story but the time and attitudes in which that story was written Mm. and so when you look at it 50 years later like doctor who you say there are parts of this that we really don't want to carry forward how do we change that and move on yes i agree absolutely you know doctor who's actually a great example of that because while, you know, maybe a couple of the early female companions in the show were a lot stronger than they're given credit for, generally speaking, there was an awful lot of women going to get the coffee or get the tea when there were serious issues going on, uh, unacceptable today. And the problem is, you know, unlike a regular TV show where you can look at it and say, well, that's how people, you know, were in the 60s or whatever. The, the Doctor's not from the 60s. <laughs> you know, the he's, Doctor's right. from Gallifrey, he's from time a, unknown. Yeah, he's from an enlightened future. And so to have a character from an enlightened future behaving that way doesn't quite ring true. And so in that case, breaking from canon can help because the point is supposed to be that he's enlightened. You know, the point is not who gets the tea. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in a way, you can be more faithful to the original vision if you just break canon a little bit and say, yeah, the doctor doesn't really do that. Yeah. So all of this I'm bringing up to set up canon in games, deciding when and where and how to break canon when you're starting off. And this comes up partly, again, when we were talking about it with Prince of uh, Prince of Egypt. I keep wanting to say Prince of Persia. It's going to happen <laughs> at some point, by the way. Um, but we're talking about it in terms of Prince of Egypt, uh, saying, okay, if we're telling a story set in the Old Testament and that biblical Egypt, biblical Canaan, and you know the surrounding lands, at what point do we say, okay, we've gone so far, and this is everything that's happened, and now we're going to start telling a different story? Mm-hmm. or a story that wasn't in the original source material, which is, in this case, scripture. And thus, people are often very, very careful whenever we're talking about making any such change, even a purely additive change that doesn't ultimately affect the larger story, because it is scripture and people are very, very sensitive to it. Well, and I mean, even if even if people don't get all religiously bent out of shape, I mean, you'll you'll mess up Aaron and then podcasters will mm-hmm. come on and call you to task for it several years later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um and I certainly have seen exactly the same reaction with things that are not as important as scripture. I know a lot of Lord of the Rings fans 
who get very upset whenever anybody tries to suggest anything that might have happened that isn't exactly how J.R.R. Tolkien or even Christopher Tolkien have written it. I'm certainly one of those when it comes to The Hobbit. I am definitely a fan of the universe in those books. I've read the Lord of the Rings trilogy a few times, and I love The Hobbit, and so I've got some bones to pick with three movies that were, in my view, unnecessary in many, mm -hmm. many ways. But it's true, there's this sense of, but I know what happened that can happen, and it can be very grating when you're trying to create a new work of fiction that builds off of an established work, like a film adaptation of a book or a film adaptation of a story from a larger text like we have in The Prince of Egypt, where it's a specific episode from the Old Testament that's well known, and you want to expand it into a drama that's going to be about characters and about their choices in a way that's going to necessarily deviate from the text as it exists, both because of historical just facts of how that text was assembled, and also because of the insights or lack of insight into those characters presented in the text. Well, and also yeah. because you're making an animated movie and you're going to yeah. actually throw anachronistic stuff into there, like the Sphinx's nose getting broken millennia before it actually happened. and You know, concerned of your audience, your audience of, <laughs> yeah. of little kids who you've got to amuse with frogs and stuff. And that's one of the things is like, I think one of the reasons you come up against this with hardcore fans is because they have something invested. They have a stake in this. Mm -hmm. There is importance in this story. There is value in this story. And there's a fear that if it gets changed, that that value will be broken or will be lost. And so I think you kind of got to take that two-pronged approach. Like, first of all, nobody can take your version away from you. You know, the Bible is there. The story, like, we're not in any danger of losing it. So if we do a version that's different, that version's not lost. And then secondly, also understanding what value people see in the story and making sure not to break canon in a way that undermines that value. And that's so important for gaming because you sold this game to somebody on the basis of the original material. And if you take out the part they care about, then it's kind of a bait and switch. Yeah, I'm going to actually reference back to your own podcast on you because I think you made a really good point in the episode about Shrek where you guys were complaining about certain references just being insulting towards the thing that they were referencing yeah and how that really doesn't add anything or it's not useful and i think you can run the risk of uh of doing that if you treat canon that's really beloved by people in kind of a cavalier way and yeah. be like oh that whole city is not there anymore if that was a really important place or you know you'll you'll lose your audience right and those places and figures may be completely irrelevant to the story you are trying to tell but because it kind of breaks up and invalidates some of the knowledge that real fans have accrued over time and have invested time and effort into learning, it's going to hurt the image that they have of this world, even if it's irrelevant to what you're trying to do. And there's a graceful way to handle that. Like, if it's not relevant to your story, then go ahead and just keep it off the table. Keep it in the distance. Don't bring it up to then knock it over or to really misrepresent it or treat it in a very joking manner. Like, if it's irrelevant, then go ahead and just leave it alone, because that mm -hmm. is a much safer choice than, oh, yeah, that character from the story that you know and care about, here's a really dumb version of them for one scene with a dumb accent, and then they're gone. That's going to be so much worse than just, you don't get to see them. They're in another part of the world. Here's the story we're telling. Yeah, all of a right. sudden, Legolas is buck-toothed and has a redneck accent. That's going to make the, the Lord of the Rings fans happy. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't create a cameo yeah. that is a joke. 
That is not a good plan. And that's, I think, one of the problems we have with canon as a rule is that it can become an authority over the GM Mm -hmm. in a story. This, by the way, is why I don't like to run games in settings that I don't create. Right. And I think it's why when GMs run games in established settings, we often fall victim to the temptation to say, now nobody read the backstory of the setting. Yeah. Because I don't want anybody to know this setting better than I do. Mm Mm-hmm. Dan from Fear the Boot has told stories about a a Ravenloft GM who insisted that nobody buy the Ravenloft book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I actually made the same error when I was trying to run an Eberron game. I simultaneously wanted everybody to act the way that Eberron PCs should act and know everything they should know, but also at the same time introduce everybody to Eberron and kind of say, hey, look, here's this cool world. Let me show it to you rather than you going out and discovering it on your own and, you know, getting in my way. Mm-hmm. It was a huge mistake. It was one of like 50 reasons the Eberron campaign I tried to run. By. <laughs> um, it was my first attempt at GMing and I could not have done it worse <laughs> without like actively slapping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're going to fail, fail hard because that gives you many opportunities to learn. Exactly. And one of the ways I failed was by running it over the internet for my first game. So I couldn't have slapped them if I'd wanted to. So, you know, lots of failures. Yeah, you know, that's I think that's a really interesting point that you had that paradox, that dichotomy you were asking your players for, that you wanted to be their sort of only agent into this setting, but at the same time you wanted them to behave as though they knew it. That goes to a deep problem with with role-playing games that is not true of other fiction, which is that someone else is playing the protagonist. Everybody at the table needs to have vital world knowledge for this world before the story begins. And that's one of the reasons that it's, I think there's a trend toward games that have um, less homework to do before you can start the game. But it also can tend to undermine the richness of the world. Like Katrina and I were talking about this the other day. Like if you imagine, you know, let's say George R. R. Martin is into role-playing games rather than writing novels, mm-hmm. trying to get his players up to speed with what's going on in his world before play begins would be a nightmare. Yeah, it, It's a problem for the medium. It, it limits the kind of stories you can tell. And I think, yeah, it's it's good to get on the same page with players, even if it takes a minute, about, like, what do we all need to know? And maybe engineer the characters a little if you have to. You know, the classic, like, well, I'm going to play a barbarian because my job is really busy right now and I don't have time to read the player's guide. <laughs> so <laughs> I come from this place where nobody knows what the hell is going on in the world. Yeah. Uh, Peter, you and I were both at, on this panel at Fear the Con, where there was this guy who brought his role-playing game that he was trying to get published. Yeah, yeah. And the game seemed kind of neat. Yeah, I still want to track down that playtest document that he was talking about. Well, yeah, the problem is he didn't have a playtest document posted because this game was, you know, this was clearly a heartbreaker labor of love. This thing was over 600 pages. Oh, dear. And I'm sure there was an enormous amount of setting detail in it. And I was sitting here thinking, I don't want to learn that game because that's just an enormous amount of information to try and take in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now I think if he was willing to break it up and he was really unhappy about the idea of breaking up his, you know, his darling. But if he had been willing to break it up, he had like several books to sell right there. (laughs) So all that setting information is not necessarily a bad thing, but the idea of presenting all of that at once is just kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's tough. And and I think it gets tougher when you're talking about popular canon properties, because now it's like, well, we've got much more than 600 pages of Star Wars material. But this guy over here has read it over the course of all these years and is now highly invested in his Star Wars world being like that. Nobody right. can realistically like cram over the weekend and read all the stuff this guy's read. Nope. No. So, and he's keeping up with it as new stuff comes out 
And me, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I read a few Star Wars books. I saw the movies and well, I saw five of the six movies and I heard there was a comic. Mm-hmm. All right. There have been That's a few. Like, oh, and I played one Star Wars game. Okay. Yay. I guess I'm good to go. It's a very different level of investment, which is not to say that I don't like Star Wars, but I almost don't want to play with that guy. Yeah, because you're going to be looking for such different things, potentially. If, you know, Mr. I've read everything there is and I will continue to read everything that comes out is really invested in all of the details or a particularly complex political situation or something big and galactic, and you're just coming in for, like, you know, pulp adventures in space, you're just on different wavelengths and it's a problem of expectations. And on TV tropes, they call this uh, continuity lockout, where sometimes it starts to get to the point where there's so much continuity and so much of the story is taken up with engaging the continuity that a new person who picks up the comic book is finds it totally incomprehensible. You can't understand what's going on unless you have the background. Right. I actually had that problem when I tried to read uh, Civil War. I, I was like, oh, Civil War, it's an event. It's, it seems like a good idea to get into the comic now. Because like, yeah, I was kind of curious about comics at the time. It's like, well, maybe I'll get into that. <laughs> well, the problem was it was dependent on a lot of backstory. Yeah. And also it had the problem of, okay, now you need to go read this other book in this other series. Now this other one in the other series. And it was kind of passing the story around horizontally. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like, I am not doing that. Nope. <laughs> not going to spend the money. Not going to spend the time. Yeah. I did that once back when I was really into comics with one storyline. It was a... uh a Green Lantern storyline about the sun being devoured by this cosmic creature thing. And it mm-hmm. was really interesting and it was really good, but man, was that a lot of effort and man, was that a lot of money. Yeah, that's that's a classic curse of comics. You know, I'm a big fan of Swamp Thing and I decided, well, oh, there's a new Swamp Thing, but I have to read Animal Man and this other book and this other book and oh, I give up. Bye-bye. Yeah. I'll yeah. wait until it comes out in the trade novels. <laughs> And the other issue with that is that the guy who knows everything about a particular setting is somebody who was necessarily going to try and do things that you as the GM or as other players won't really know our options or won't want to get involved in. Or worse, mm-hmm. as the GM, he's going to expect you to know that those are options and you're not going to have a clue. Right. I don't remember who I heard talking about this. It was somebody on a podcast or possibly a friend of ours, Peter, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but it was a guy who was running a Forgotten Realms game. I don't want to say it was a module necessarily, but it was pretty much here is this particular place that we're starting off in, and we're going down a pretty set path, an adventure that I've got written. And one of the players was a diehard Forgotten Realms fan, and he's like, okay, well, where are we? Okay, I go buy a horse and I ride three days northwest to this other town. Oh, dear. (laughs) Why would you do that? He knows it's three days northwest because he knows the map that well, but that's not the story the GM had planned. Yeah. And while I am entirely in favor of collaborative storytelling, I am not necessarily in favor of saying, guys, I'm going to hijack the plot for all of us. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between collaboration and then, like, taking the story and putting it on your horse and riding away. <laughs> right. Three <laughs> not, days, northwest, right. Yeah, not not all improv is good improv. <laughs> you know, right. improv gaming has just as much potential to be awful as any other kind. And that, I think, is maybe a good point to start talking about ways to avoid this issue. Because one of the things that most GMs will say is, okay, guys, starting now, starting at this point in time, it's our own story. Nothing that happens after that is canon in my universe. Mm -hmm. Or in our game. 
this is gaming advice that has been around for decades. Yeah, mm. unnecessarily because of things like Metaplot. Yeah, it has to be. And this can be really good advice for series that kind of go off the rails in the middle. Like if I was to hijack this for just a moment, if I was going to run a Matrix game, I would completely disregard the second two movies. I would pick it up right <laughs> after the end of the original Matrix. Yeah, and you'd have a very different game. Yeah. I think that's a it's a great idea. I think that you have to make that break point. And even if you're going to try to sort of weave it through canon, which sometimes happens, like I know Star Wars commonly does this because people often want to set games like in between the two sets of films, which means there are certain things we can't do. Like we can't go off Darth Vader because then the later movies can't happen. Even if you're going to try to weave it through, I think having some sense that like we're breaking off at this point and like this is sort of on the canon list and that's sort of that's off limits. We're going to make it work somehow. But basically, we're not going to we're not going to be beholden to the source material. I don't want anybody coming to the table pointing at a book or, mm -hmm. you know, at a screen cap and saying, no, look, it happened this way. And then I have to kind of knuckle under as the GM. Yeah, um, I, I encountered some of this with vampire LARPs because I was playing during the end of the world books and there were a lot of them and they would just post up at the convention I went to. Here's what's happened. We're not going to deal with the end of the world. Enjoy your weekend of being vampires together. <laughs> and this is how much of the apocalypse is currently going on. And we're not going to deal with anything else. Like, that's it. You can't introduce stuff to me from, like, the end of the world and werewolf or whatever else. Like, you cannot. It is not allowed. We are not dealing with that here today. If you happen to feed the apocalypse, great. But we're not going to talk about it. it. That can definitely happen in serial fiction, which is so useful for role-playing as inspiration. But can quickly overwhelm you if you've got a lot of meta plot. I think it is helpful when you're planning a game or telling a story through a game to keep coming back to the canon mm -hmm. just a little bit and using it as a touchstone to say, hey guys, we're still in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm running a Legend of the Five Rings game, I do sometimes want to come back, even if we're off doing our own thing, I want to come back and say, hey guys, you know this L5R world we fell in love with? Its problems still continue, and maybe some little meta plot thing comes in, and we kind of see it at a distance, or we deal with another prototypical issue that is common to the setting as a whole, and we go, oh, right, it's still Rokugan. Or yeah. even you know? something as simple as, I still want to see that Crab Clan samurai chewing out the Scorpion Clan courtier because he thinks he's, you know, not contributing anything of worth to the Empire. Right. You want to have those little moments of, right, just because we're off doing our own thing doesn't mean that we have lost touch with the thing that we really wanted to play. You picked this setting for a reason. Well, that's where iconic images or moments or events can be a great way to kind of cheat at canon, like to borrow some mm -hmm. of the value of the canon works or the canon setting while still being free to tell your own story by borrowing those big important places or really neat NPCs or an interesting event that you hear about and everybody knows from the canonical works, that's a great way to invoke it without having it then overwhelm you. You still get to have your value, but it doesn't necessarily overrun your story, which is really nice. And a lot of that's design work. If you've created a story that's compelling in its own right and is neither in the shadow of nor overshadows the canonical material, then you're going to find that it's a pretty comfortable fit. You know, like if our people are just as cool as those superheroes over there doing the canonical thing, then it's okay if we see them on the news or whatever. Mm -hmm. Where you run into a problem is when, no, we're just like superpowered scrubs and they're the real superheroes. 
that's when if you try to introduce that iconic stuff, it starts to um right. your I'll stuff starts to pale too. in comparison or vice versa. One of the coolest examples of this that I heard of, and I wish I could remember the source, was somebody somewhere ran a Star Wars campaign that was going on during the time of the original trilogy, but they were all rebel intelligence agencies finding and feeding back information to the protagonists from the movies. So they're mm -hmm. doing all of this awesome espionage stuff, but they weren't famous because if anybody knew who they were, they weren't doing their job. So you get all of this cool Star Wars stuff mixed with all of this other cool, like, covert and espionage stuff. And you make your characters feel like they're absolutely pivotal to the stuff that's going on in the movies because you're feeding the intelligence back to those people. And what's great about that is it doesn't undercut the premise of either your game or the canon that you're basing the game on. Nope. That's really deftly done. Yeah. Yeah. I it's heard nice. about that and I was like, you know, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but I would totally play in that game. Yeah, I would too. That sounds great. And, you know, that connects to what we're talking about with Prince of Egypt because it's it's very much the same thing. It's let's keep the original story intact, but let's add a perspective on that story that is very different. Like Star Wars is definitely not an espionage thriller, but we can put an espionage thriller into it and maintain all the sort of physical realities of that story and just have a new perspective and kind of make it fresh. And Prince of Egypt did that because you've got this grand story about a people and their relationship with God. And Prince of Egypt adds this human element of these two brothers having to go different ways. Mm -hmm. And how much it kind of costs both of them and how it affects them both. And Yeah. And it's good because you still get the drama and majesty of the original story, but you also add an element of human pathos. And you have something that's going to work for a more Hollywood movie format where we want to be very invested in characters individually, especially like a film for children. You want them to identify with some characters, get invested in those characters. And that's a little harder to do when you've got a big grand story about a people and what happens to those people as they move through time and their relationships to other big groups of people and to God and these kind of epic sweeping stories you always need those individuals if you're going to create the film adaptation that you can sink your teeth into and have your audience go through the journey with and they really wanted to have that be new and interesting because there's there's been a lot of moseses in film and they wanted to have their own moses and their own pharaoh and do it in a way that was going to be interesting and work for the kind of movie they were making yeah gaming is another medium that needs that kind of adaptation and that's one reason why on our podcast the first thing we talk about is character, because if you're going to adapt material, to me, question number one is, where's the party? Who are the PCs here? Because then we can build everything else from that. That brings up another important point. A lot of the time, if you're working from canonical works, you've got like one or maybe two really important protagonist style people in the, in the tale. Mm hmm. You're going to have a lot more than that at your typical gaming table. You're going to have three to five of those guys or gals or aliens or artificial intelligences or whatever you're playing. And you've got to find some way of taking the canon and making it so that you can have a group of people that are moving the story forward rather than just a single individual who the story centers around. And I think that's one reason why a lot of GMs like to avoid the protagonists entirely. Oh, definitely. Because it's easier to find a new place for this new group of characters if the characters we already know just don't really feature in, aside from maybe a quick cameo or, you know, Han Solo is flying you guys somewhere to drop you off and let you do your thing. 
you know, it's a little, hey, look, it's me. And then I'm off and not interfering. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear a lot of horror stories about, and let's take a tour of all the famous non-player characters. Because yeah. then you're setting those up as more important than the player characters who are the, being run by the people at the table. And that's where the story we're trying to tell yeah, is. Yeah, nobody wants to be overshadowed from the jump in a game. That, that'll that just suck the life and the buy-in right out of it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Especially if the... um protagonists are in a unique position to change the world, which is very often the case in heroic fiction, because we've now got introduced new characters who are who are also in a position to change the world. And oftentimes, it doesn't quite mesh. It's like, you're right, we don't want to be overshadowed. At the same time, if you put us on their level, it makes it difficult. Like this is I mean, Luke Skywalker is the classic example. Luke Skywalker is the guy. I mean, that's the premise (laughs) of those movies. So if he runs into five other guys who are the guy, it's like, wait a minute. Something is wrong here. Well, and to say nothing of the fact that if your players have agreed to this game, they probably like the canon too, and none of them actually want to overshadow Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't want to be overshadowed by this guy, but neither do I want to overshadow him because that means I'm invalidating the source material, which I also like. It can really feel insulting if you kind of run a, a game or tell a story where you completely invalidate the original canonical efforts that those characters that, again, everybody's invested in, put into the story from their perspective. My go-to example of this is the Orson Scott Card Ender series. Mm. You know, there are a couple of, of, well, okay, there were two good books and then some other books <laughs> in the you know, that series saying, hey, so you know, this is... So many other books. I know. So um, many. You know, this is what Ender Wiggins did to save humanity and the story of what happened after. Okay, cool. And then he comes along and says, oh, by the way, Ender didn't do any of that. It was this other character. Ah, don't do it. He thought he did it, but really it was this other guy doing it behind the scenes because my original character was a real weakling and, you know, a waffling, unheroic person. Yeah, so not okay. My go-to example for this, my favorite video game of all time is Chrono Trigger. And one of the Mm -hmm. most disappointing sequels I've played is Chrono Cross which goes so far as to basically have the time-displaced ghosts of the protagonist from the original game appear to you and explain to you in character why none of the things they did in the original game mattered. Which is the worst. Don't do that. It's it's just not okay. Then again, most of that game was difficult to connect to Chrono Trigger in any way. Uh, Chrono Cross was weird. Chrono Cross was, was weird, although I will say, side note, uh, definitely get the soundtrack from Chrono Cross for your gaming table. It's excellent gaming music. It's the best use you can make of that game. And all of the remixes on OC Remix, so good. Yeah. <laughs> and the Chrono Trigger music, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can also, I think, add some depth to a character. Like, you know, I was saying don't undercut a character completely, but at the same time, showing that there is something that they can't do is, I think, valid because then that leaves an opening for you to do it. Maybe not necessarily something canonical, but maybe at this point Luke Skywalker is too recognizable. We got to get somebody who isn't Luke to go do this thing. And we know it's got to be a Force user, so we need a Force user, but it can't be Luke. Let's go find somebody, like a player character. Mm-hmm. And there's your Black Ops Star Wars espionage squad again. Sure. Or even simply, Luke's over here doing stuff. Something equally important needs to be done over here. At the same time. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you enter into the potentially rewarding and potentially hazardous territory of original characters within a canonical work. Highly profitable to create new, unbaggaged, 
kind of free agents in that universe, but they've got all kinds of peril around them in terms of how they're going to interact with established locations and characters and relationships and so on, and how they're going to be able to tell their stories, and you as a gaming group tell those stories within this larger world. Original characters are really, really fun and a great way to kind of bump up into all of the edges of a of a setting and see what happens. But they're also very hazardous. There are a lot of ways in which original characters can go very wrong. And vitally to me, they have to be allowed to own as much of the setting as the canon characters do. Yeah. I mean, Luke Skywalker is not just Luke Skywalker. He owns an awful lot of setting real estate in terms of the history of the world and how he's tied into it. And if you put him even in an NPC capacity next to player characters who are just like fresh out the pencil, like it's just they're scrawled on a character sheet and that's the only connection they have to the Star Wars universe, he's going to overshadow them regardless of anything like power level just because the world is clearly about him and not about them. Whereas if you create another important, I mean, if you create, you know, a family of spice merchants who are like outcast humans competing with the huts on Tatooine, and uh, they're getting by because they're a leg of this giant kind of like merchant organization that spans this whole part of the galaxy, and they're kind of covert and all that. Now you're like the scion of that family. That's setting real estate that Luke Skywalker's not involved in. And so, of course, he wouldn't be involved. Yeah, if you're going to run into anybody from the movies playing that, it might be Lando. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and he's not, I mean, he's an interesting character. He's well acted and well portrayed in the movies, but he's a comparatively minor character. Likewise, if you were going to do something similar in a biblical setting, instead of going for one of the big heavy hitters like Moses or Joseph, take like somebody like Boaz and make him your yeah. NPC that you use as your touchstone to kind of show when and where you're playing. He's not super detailed in the Bible. I mean, he's obviously a really good guy from the the descriptions, but, you know, we don't have a tremendous amount of detail about his story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if you're going to use something that's established, those people that show up are interesting for a few minutes and then are never seen again or are not seen again for a very long time in your canonical work. Those, I would think, paradoxically become your really valuable characters because each one of those people has a story of their own that hasn't been told in the main work. So you can start spinning stuff off of there. And if you are going to break canon, people are maybe less invested in that. You know, if you want to reveal new things or even contradict some things about, you know, salacious crumb, then maybe that's a lot more. That's that's fun. Nobody's going to flip the table over it. Yeah. Yeah. On a more practical level, I think you need to take some pretty good notes when you start really breaking canon. Yeah. If only because people will potentially be confused about what is canon in the game and what is canon in the meta story and which of these things, did we establish this or this? It helps to have that written down, even if it's just, you know, another player's note saying, oh, no, 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 we did it this way and we determined that this happened. That's mostly an early on thing, I think, if your game is kind of a long running game, because everybody will get invested in the story that you are telling instead of the story that everybody came in knowing. But it helps get you off the ground. It does, and I would definitely say when you're dealing with an established setting or canonical body of work of any kind, that having an in-game timeline of stuff that has happened is a great shorthand way to do this, and it's really useful because you can have those moments like, this stuff is going to happen. You can even be a little forward-thinking with your timeline. Like, what are events from the setting or important conflicts that I want to preserve? I'm thinking Lord of the Rings here, because they have such fun timelines that you can crib from, like okay, this is a really important event that I do want to keep in the world, and here's all the space in between them, and let's find out what happens. Or 
what's going to be different when we come to that moment? What's going to be different because of the actions of the players? Along those same lines, you may want to look around and see if for some of the really well-established canon settings out there, if those timelines aren't just available and you can get one and then start drawing in the margins. I know um, for Lord of the Rings, I don't know if they're still in print, but there was actually like a history of Middle-earth that included all the events of the Lord of the Rings and stuff before and after that was available for a while. Those are still around. And if you're doing it in something like, you know, Tolkien's Middle-earth with the whole history that's written out in the Silmarillion and things like that, I think you can get some dramatic value out of saying, hey, so this is taking place in, you know, the 100, 200 years before Morgoth comes out and does this particular battle. Mm -hmm. And the people who are fans of that story will go, wait a minute, that's the battle that ruins everything. Mm -hmm. Like, everything burns and it's awful. And you go, yeah, um... So yeah, you're you're all kind of doomed, but you should tell a good story in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. You can get a certain kind of dramatic irony or a certain sense of tragedy out of that. Or you can say, yeah. Are you going to change the entire universe or not? Right. The players are looking at, at that going, boy, we, we really need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Even if the characters don't know anything, the players are looking at it going, oh man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. It's a great ticking time bomb. Yeah. yeah I, I think you... You make a fantastic point because there is inherently a level of metagaming involved with playing a canon setting. I mean, people know what's happening. They may know what's going to happen. They certainly know what did happen in a way their characters don't because they're following the fiction. So leverage that. Don't try to hide it. Use it and allow them to. I mean, you could even do it uh, sort of the opposite way. You know, if you know that there's an important thing coming up in the setting, you could say, uh, and I don't know Tolkien at all, um, but uh, you could say, you know, in 100 years, this is what's meant to happen in the timeline, this big event. In our game, in 100 years, something different happens. And this game is about finding out why. What's different about this version of the story that causes things to go differently? And so we as GM and as players are all looking for, well, maybe this thing is different. Maybe these people live over here. Maybe this alliance doesn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, and so we're, again, as you were suggesting, we're leveraging that metagame knowledge of the setting to engage the players in the process of looking for ways to break canon. Because as with anything, if the players get to do it, they like it a lot more than if the players are expected to sit there and have it done to them. Heck, yeah. I would say go so far as to say that that's the thing that's special about your player characters is they have this mm. unique kind of prophetic knowledge or future memories or that sort of thing of the way that things will turn out if they don't act in some way. And yeah. it's, you know, that that knowledge is as perfect as the knowledge of the player sitting at the table. There's going to be differing levels of it and, you know, they may be able to kind of work to to bring it to the forefront of their minds if it's important to them and then set them loose, yeah. you know, and see what they do. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tomorrow edition on a heroic yeah. scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually uh, another great show for that is uh, quantum leap, which is like the worst show ever with a perfect story engine. Um, that <laughs> yeah. has All those perfect things set in line. So it's like Sam remembers a lot of stuff, but he doesn't remember everything. So like he doesn't remember the things it's convenient for him not to remember. But if there's specific information he needs, he has it. He has like this computer that tells him what the point of the plot is, <laughs> but not until he's halfway through it. A lot of those mechanisms could be adapted to a game where you want the players to know roughly the direction that canon is going, but gives them the freedom to break it with some degree of knowledge and agency. Right. And talking about Sam, that's a good example of a character who has some in-setting knowledge, and you might in a game represent that as a knowledge check, mm-hmm. a mechanical reminder of here's where we are in this story and kind of how things are. And again, some of those touchstones on the setting 
as it originally is, as appropriate. It's a great way to limit the player who knows way too much about the setting for everyone else Mm -hmm. to say, before you start spouting stuff about, you know, this particular crime syndicate, make your knowledge roll. Because then if you make it, then you can get a signal from the GM like either, okay, go ahead, tell us everything you read about, you know, the crime syndicate novels, or things are a little different in this world. So here's what's going on. Um, it gives you a great yeah. granular moment in the course of the conversation that is the session to either, you know, cool your jets or no, go ahead. I haven't changed any of that stuff. Or if you want to kind of have some fun with it and give that player a little mini game in that moment, say, OK, uh, how much did you make that by? You got two degrees of success. OK, tell everybody two things mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. What, what's coming up. You, of course, know a lot more than that. You need to decide what two things your character might remember and what you're just going to have to leave out. Yeah. 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 That's a terrific idea. What are the what are the two most important things? Oh boy. That you want to share. Or or may not even necessarily the most important, but the two things that this person remembers. Mm-hmm. The uh the Doctor Who role playing game does a thing like that cuz the doctor spends a lot of time spouting off things. He knows a lot more than the other characters, so they have these little pre-printed cards for the various adventures with salient information on them. And so you can give those to players as a result of like their knowledge abilities or ahead of time, so that whether the player knows or not, if you're playing the Doctor, you're on even footing. You've got a little card in front of you that you can read out your explanation of, like, who are these aliens and what are they up to, which would be a great, subtle way for the GM to insert any breaks with canon that you need to do, you know? Pass out, like, you're the expert on these people, I've changed them from the canon source, so here's five little index cards with tidbits on them, and I've made the changes to those tidbits to make sure you're not saying anything false, because, you know, you've read the books. And that's also a great way for your player at the table who's maybe not a big Lord of the Rings fan or not as invested in the canonical work you're borrowing from or setting your game in to be able to hand them cards like, here's what's going on, or like, when you make your knowledge roll, here's what you discover, and 100% this is accurate and you can count on it for this game. Mm-hmm. I see no reason why that wouldn't work even in non-canon-related games. Yeah. Like, I kind of want to write some of those up for the Unknown Armies game I'm about to write. <laughs> not a bad so. idea, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here's the thing. In a sense, that has a canon because we're setting it in Atlanta and we all need to know certain details about Atlanta because everybody is supposed to have lived in Atlanta, Georgia for at least a couple of months mm-hmm. and kind of know the area because it the game is going to relate to some of the history of Atlanta. I've been doing a lot of research and things like that. So in a sense, that real world is a canon that the players need to have some knowledge about. Oh, yeah. I think everything we've said in this episode basically applies to playing a historical game because it's the same situation. It's something somebody at the table has read a million books about, somebody else at the table knows nothing about, and somebody at the table is going to be outraged if you get the details wrong and trying to balance them. And then there's one other person who just started reading and knows just enough to be looked down on by the other two who have read more. (laughs) Maps. Maps are interesting canonical objects in and of themselves i uh, ran a changeling game that used several maps because we did borrow from local local regions and i just wrote in here's where the fairy stuff is here's where the changeling hideouts are here are the things that are different on this map that you already know because you live in this town and it was a great way to kind of at once sort of establish what was going to be the canonical world for the game but also because you know it's a changeling game it's a world of darkness game be like just a little alienating just a little creepy like you think you know this place but you're wrong and i've proved it because here's a map one of the cool things about maps is different map makers with different agendas make different Mm -hmm. maps 
Yeah, there was actually a really good episode of Cartas about that recently. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. Ken and Robin talk about stuff, you know, these amazingly detailed Soviet maps of various different places, not just the Soviet Union. Like, they mapped Galveston, Texas in insane detail hmm. at a topographic level, mostly just to say they could because it was designed for tank commanders and Russia is unlikely to be rolling tanks through Galveston, Texas. Yep. But it was kind of a political coup counting kind of mechanism saying, look, we have better maps of Galveston than the United States does. Go us. <laughs> Meanwhile, they had such terrible maps of their own territory that the Russian cabbies were using the CIA World Factbook map to get around <laughs> the city they were working in. Well, it's not that they had bad maps. It's that the map was right. classified. So the publicly available map was actually deliberately distorted to make it confusing for the enemy that would be rolling through using maps out of civilian guidebooks. Yeah. Wowzers. What a tangled web. Yeah. And even in the army, Soviet maps were classified documents because they didn't want your average soldier to know where they were. It was a very... It was a very paranoid regime. Yeah, exactly. That, that tangle of history and that tangle of reality is something you can use to your benefit when you're breaking canon. Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the old um, Star Wars versus Star Trek site, StarDestroyer.net, but the guy who ran it, who I'm sure is a lovely gentleman, was very kind of obsessed with <laughs> the very specific uh, like physical properties and like energy values associated with Imperial technology, and was also very uh, invested in the idea that the Empire would beat the Federation. And one of the things he ultimately came up with that he started pushing on the site to account for the Ewoks beating the stormtroopers mm -hmm. was this basically rebel documentary hypothesis that the version of events we see in Return of the Jedi is a biased rebel documentary of the events on the forest moon of Endor. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something that you can use if you're going to break canon in your game is that we never really know what happened. Any version of events that you've seen is somebody's version of events. And so as long as we hit the hit the high notes, as long as we hit those important points in the story, the stuff that happened in between, like maybe some of that story didn't get told, it, it just exists in this sort of haze. And I know that Vampire the Masquerade did that a lot with some of their material, particularly like the clan books. Every oh, clan yeah. book has a different version of where we all came from and where we're going. And there's there's mm -hmm. no authorial voice on the whole the line as a whole about which of those things is true. They're just all sort of presented. And you can do that to your players. You can say, well, yeah, you have heard that the huts do this but you just saw the huts do that so you figure it out i told you i was going to bring up prince of persia at some point mm -hmm. didn't i prince of persia sands of time the conceit of the game is that it is the main character telling you what happened and so when your character dies going to the restart screen the little voiceover does something like no 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 that's not how the story went or i don't remember how it, that it happened this way and he always kind of backs it up and says all right uh, it actually happened this way mm -hmm. You know, it's an action game. It's kind of a funny little conceit, but I like the idea of saying, okay, this is the story everyone knows. It's wrong. <laughs> Here's what really happened. I, I want to say that's been a conceit in at least one Disney movie. Maleficent. It was the uh, conceit, conceit in Maleficent. For sure. Maleficent, that, that gets to a great point that to me is like a thing that if, if you're ever GMing a game for me, this is the thing to know. I am totally comfortable with people breaking canon, but if you're going to break it, break it up front and make the appropriate changes. One of the things that bugged me so much about Maleficent was that it had the promise of sort of justifying or adding a new dimension to what Maleficent did in Cinderella, but instead Sleeping it rewrote Beauty. 
I'm sorry, in Sleeping Beauty. But instead, it rewrote what she did. And, and I feel like that kind of pulled the rug out from the premise. So if you want to tell a cam, if you want to do a campaign that tells a story where things are not what we've all heard, that's great. But let me know that before I start picking characters and all that stuff. Because if I think that we're going to be weaving in and out of canon, we're going to be like weaving through it, and instead you just change it, that's information that I needed to know for my character, you know, because those are like, in some cases, the building blocks of who they are. If the good guys turn out to be evil in your version, well, what if I work for those guys? Maybe that's still fun, but maybe not. I, I need to know. Mm-hmm. And depending on the game, you may also have room for a what if story. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, to go with a Disney example, in I want to say Cinderella 3, and I only half know this because I was half watching it with my daughter, uh, mostly trying to get her to sit still and eat. But Cinderella 3 is kind of a what if story because if I remember correctly, the stepmother gets hold of the fairy godmother's wand and undoes everything and makes one of her daughters fit the slipper. I think you're right. I think it's like a twist in time or something. Yeah, twist. Yeah, that's what it is. Twist in time, something like that. And so it's rewind. What if it had happened this way? <laughs> and of course, some of that story is let's go and restore how it should be, which is a perfectly fine way for player characters to go, wait, no, we know this isn't right. Let's try and fix it while exploring something interesting going on. Or, you can, you know, you can do the somewhat cheesy and it was all a dream kind of thing and have a little sidebar of what if it had happened like this and that's great and it again it, it has it up front and it doesn't do the sneaky thing that the maleficent film did where it was here's maleficent who you know in her big spooky gothic drama and then when you go to the movie it's like no she's secretly like the nicest queen of the fairies ever with a scary head and everything <laughs> you thought you knew is a lie and all of the characters that you liked are now made minions and hapless in the face of this one omnipresent character throughout all of that story that you knew or thought you knew and liked, which I think speaks to one of the most dangerous kinds of original characters, the original character that eats the entire story and does every important thing. Yes, the the Mary Sue. Yes. And it's usually a single author fiction problem. Mm-hmm. It can happen in tabletop RPGs, but because of the collaborative storytelling nature of it, it's less likely. I'm not going to say it's impossible. But it's less likely. Yeah, if one of the player characters starts getting too Mary sue the other ones are probably going to wrench them along to something yeah. or other. Yeah, or the GM's going to say something, or, you know, there will be a little yeah, talk. Yeah, there will and... be some metagame solution that really can't happen in fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that is a solution. The danger there is in the conceptual level where if somebody thinks that they're going to be like, you know, if somebody thinks they're going to be the new Harry Potter of your Hogwarts game, and then at some point the GM has to come in or the other players have to come in and say, look, it's not really like that. We're all equally important. If that player is cool with it, then it's fine. But if their fun in the game was contingent upon being the new Harry Potter, then you may have a problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not the least of which might be your player's maturity level. <laughs> Perhaps so, but at the very least, it may just be, oh, we didn't set the expectations for this game correctly up sure. front. Could just be a genuine, oh, well, that's not the game I thought I was playing, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it happens. And a, a real quick note to back up just for a moment about the setting time right thing. I want to say that's been the basic outline of at least three different Star Trek episodes across different series. The whole, oh, yeah. somebody's gone back in time and has to make sure that things happen correctly mm-hmm. or the timeline is fixed and so on and so forth. Yeah, they have those, they have some special name for when that happens in Star Trek. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't remember. 
I, I don't know what it is, but it's certainly common enough that I can sit there and go, and, I know I've seen that happen. A few times. On two different ships. <laughs> yeah, it's something like a predetermination paradox. Like you went back in time to do yeah. the thing and thus you have to do the thing because you did it in the past and you didn't know. And it's a loop. Ah. Yeah, it's a mess. Time travel is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, you know, be gentle with time travel. The time stream is fragile and easily broken. <laughs> or, or at least the minds of the people perceiving it are fragile and easily broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That too. Yeah. Um, maybe if I could just make one kind of blanket suggestion about this. I think that um, including the players in the process of narrowing down the canon to what is important, it's such an important value decision for your game that I would definitely recommend that being a collaborative thing. And I think that will solve most of the biggest problems. It's just, I mean, to take the story of Moses as an example, I'm sure they did something when they were making Prince of Egypt where they all sat down and took out, you know, the piece of paper or whatever, and were like, okay, here are the key parts of this story. These are the things we cannot change. And then this other stuff is negotiable, and that can be shifted around. I think if the GM and the players are all on the same page about that, you're not going to have the same kind of problems as you do if it's just a free-for-all, because we understand what's important. Like, this particularly came up, like, there was an email from Sony that leaked, right, about, like, instructions from Marvel about how you could portray Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering this correctly. It was like, what features the character you can't change? Yeah. That's good information to have from your players. At what point have I changed Spider-Man so much that he's no longer Spider-Man? Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and I mean, at, at that point, to go back to the Prince of Egypt, hopefully if somebody's going to be annoyed by having Aaron be so much more of a minor character and so much less of a dynamic one, that'll come out in that initial planning phase and you can account for it. Right. Or it is a clearly made decision where somebody said, okay, we feel we can't have an additional character here. We're going to have to sacrifice this character and turn them into something that is not necessarily true to the original, but is a cut we're going to make in order to maintain the greater integrity of the whole story and the characters we've got mm -hmm. that are really important. Yeah. Which is kind of what I suspect happened is they said, we've got to take this and compress it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And we've got the one brother, so we don't want to have the other. And I think that very often will happen in gaming. Like, uh, you know, talk about time travel stories and stuff. I'm working on a the next leg of a Doctor Who thing that we've played in our group. And one of the things you have to decide there is like, there are different eras, there are different phases to the show. I kind of have to know what you guys want to do before I decide what part of canon I'm going to break and which part I'm not, because it really does depend on the story we want to tell. Sometimes two things are both great to have, but you can't have them both at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep trying to run a Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game. And every time I get into the planning phase, I kind of have to sit down and look at it and say, okay, I don't want to run a vanilla 40k game because the Warhammer 40k setting is kind of awful. Mm -hmm. But there are parts I like, and there are parts of the game I like, and what's important? What do I want to keep? And what little canonical pieces can I change in order to make a more interesting story, especially for the player who will immediately say, oh, wait, no, I know that feature, that character, that group, that whatever. How are they here and why? Yeah. And at what point do I just look at him and say, dude, roll with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I can drop in a last minute plug to another podcast here, we, we listen to uh, Story Wonk's Dusted podcast, which is a podcast about the Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, series. One of the things they talk about is like certain episodes have sort of subtly fallen out of continuity. Like the show itself kind of stopped acknowledging those events just mm -hmm. to get them out of the way. And a great sort of a way to pocket veto a part of your continuity is the last time on Buffy. Because if you keep mentioning certain things and then stop mentioning other things, 
then it's a nice subtle way to signal like, okay, we're not going to address that stuff anymore. And then gradually it kind of, it no longer happened. And that frees us up to tell this new story. And you can kind of do that when you um, step into a new canon game, you know, if you, whether it's the crawl of your Star Wars game, or it's the like, here's what's happened in the last 50 years on Marvel Earth, or whatever, you're setting it up specifically, you're kind of feathering the nest for those specific player characters. Here's the stuff that's important in canon that applies to you, and changes that I made that are for you. And we're not going to talk about the other stuff, because really, you know, who cares if the events of Amazing Wolfman number 450 really happened? We're just not talking about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that'll probably wrap it up yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, once again, Chris, Katrina, thank you so much for coming on. It has been really good to have you. It's been a pleasure having you here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having us on. Yeah, it's fun. We really appreciate it, and it's really exciting, and we like your podcast a lot, so it's fun to work with you on stuff. <laughs> yeah, we well, feel the you. same way about yours. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I can gush about the gameable Disney and gameable Pixar podcast podcasts it's going to confuse me forever okay. i'm sorry um i can gush about that for you know probably just a whole bonus episode if i need yeah to. Hey, yeah especially if he's got my help he can definitely go for a whole bonus episode <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all right so real quick obviously you know we ask people hey where can they find you on the internet that sort of thing what's one episode of the gameable disney gameable pixar series of shows that you would suggest is perfect for a first time. It listener. sounds like you're talking about the gameable podcast series of podcasts. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? The, the game of, yes, the gameable network yeah, right, right. of shows, the, the two person <laughs> network. Um, let's see a great episode to start with. Um, what do you think about this? Katrina? I really like our nightmare before Christmas episode, huh. just because I think that's a fun one to talk about the idea of a really, like a nested setting and seasonal and fun and with a real broad spectrum of different sorts of characters. I also really like our discussion, oddly enough, of um, the Black Cauldron. Black Cauldron is a good one. I'll second Black Cauldron. I think it's it's maybe the second worst Disney movie. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a fan of listening to people talk about bad movies, we've got that for you. It's got a lot of stuff about why that story doesn't work. And uh, it's the one that's like the closest to generally bad role-playing games. And so I feel like a lot of the advice is super easy to pick up and use. Like it's a lot of here are ways in which stories can go wrong, movies can go wrong, and games go wrong often. So it's really <laughs> right. useful. So yeah, good luck cutting that response down. But I'm going to recommend Black Cauldron. Oh, who cuts these things <laughs> yeah. down? No, that's more editing. Come on. <laughs> I got a confession <laughs> for you. I have not worked through your backlog enough to hear either. Really? Of Nightmare Before Christmas or Black Cauldron. Those are I both know, good episodes. Terrible. I have worked my way through your backlog. <laughs> thank you. Well, once again, Chris and Katrina, thank you so much. Find them on Twitter at Gameable Podcast, GameableDisneyPodcast.tumblr.com, and, you know, a few other places here and there on the internet. Mm -hmm. And from all of us here at Saving the Game and the Gameable Disney Podcast, have a good one, folks. Bye. Bye-bye. Have a good one. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless and happy gaming.